Welcome to Managing Marketing, and this week I'm joined by Ashton Bishop, who is the CEO of Step Change, formerly Step Change Marketing. Welcome, Ashton. Thank you, Darren. Now, it's really uh, interesting, and one of the reasons I wanted to get you back, because you were here previously with uh, your business partner, Jeff Cooper, but yes. I really, uh, I saw a video that you guys produced about the change of Step Change Marketing to Step Change, yes. and the focus on change. Yep. And so I wanted to uh, spend some time with you having a chat about the insights behind change. Yeah, yeah, we had our own little change, as you pointed out, Darren, where we dropped the marketing off the name to really represent, I guess, the coming together and the confluence of strategy, marketing and leadership, where things acting in isolation have become less effective. So trying to thread those things together and give organisations a sense of direction in tumultuous times was really the change we needed to make to support our clients. Yeah, because we do live in a time, you know, it becomes almost glib to say change is inevitable, mm. but we do live in a time where change is ubiquitous. Everywhere there is change. And what I'm seeing is that, you know, there are so many people that struggle with change, even though they'll chant mantras about, you know, bring on change, change is good and all that sort of thing. Why do you think this struggle exists? Well, mate, it's, it's the difficulty to, to deal with it. And I, I've got some F me Fs for you today. Yeah. F me Fs. I know what they are. Yeah, okay. As long as the audience do as well. So uh, we looked at some Cisco research said uh, 2014, 40% of the Fortune 500 companies will not exist in 10 years' time. Yeah. So at a company level, there is massive change. When you look at people coming through and employees, the... The, the stat of 65% of children entering primary school, right, uh, so our children of today, 65% will be employed in jobs that don't exist currently. Yeah, I've heard these. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, I guess the one that ties it together was the, the Tony Sheba quote that basically said, over the next 10 to 15 years, every industry will be disrupted. So we are looking at a cataclysmic amount of change given human history. So we've had... 270,000 evolutionary cycles that have got us here today, but the amount of change in our ability to adapt to that is going to test us as individuals and as companies and also the systems and processes and ways of business that we've used in the past. So across all of those levels, the tensions and pressures are like never before, but the opportunities are like never before. But Ashton, you know, all those stats just tell me the tsunami is yeah. upon us. Why do people still insist on sitting there like King Canute and say, hold back the tide, hold back the tide, when it's here? I mean, isn't resisting change or this constant struggle with change actually uh, pointless or futile? Well, we're fighting our evolution, Darren, <laughs> is that across those 270,000 evolutionary cycles, we've sought certainty. Mm. We actually want to reduce our brain's usage so people aren't stupid, they're, they're lazy, and they're lazy because it used to be smart to conserve energy. So brain, 2% of our body mass, 20% of our energy consumption, we look for certainty. And, and if you look at the, the change that hit the software industry, and I think that's 
that's almost the canary in the mine for the way that businesses needs to adapt. And remember we said there was people, organisations and then systems and structures. The transition from the waterfall planning method of Gantt charts and we'll do this, then we'll do that, then we'll do this and we'll plan everything out over five years assuming nothing changes through to the scrum methodology which is basically the lean principles and the agile, agile principles of test, learn, refine, repeat. We've seen that that sector move, I think the rest of the sectors need to move as well. So to answer your question of why fight it, it's not about fighting it, it's about looking for certainty. And in the absence of the thinking systems and ways to adapt, people go into uh, that limbic response, the human response yeah. of the four Fs. Uh, fight, resist yeah. it, flight, run away, freeze, and reproduction. So the four Fs uh, are sort of tend to be the limited responses. So we just need better thinking and better responses to what's going on. And look, um, there is a lot of evidence that in mammals, as a as a animal and a human being age, they actually shut down options and choices mm. as a way of coping with life. Yeah. You know, they, they, this is why we see teenagers and young adults exploring lots of possibilities. They also, where the Darwin Awards come from, yeah, yeah. people in exploring those possibilities take themselves out of the gene pool. But in a way, with the pace of change, and it's being driven by the technology age, yes. that pace of change is what's actually working counter to our evolutionary development. You know, people stop listening to new music at a certain age. People yes. won't get, if you haven't got a tattoo mm. by a certain age, you'll most likely never get one. These are the things that are that are inborn into us as mammals mm. to protect us and, and supposedly increase our chance. But when change is so prevalent, mm. we need to find coping mechanisms yeah. to be able to deal with that. So. You personally and you and Jeff with your business, mm. how do you manage change? Well, I guess around that, as you quite rightly point out, mammal fear response, and I think it comes from a world where the world was out to get us. One of my favourite quotes is from one of the cybernetics guys, and he said, it is the greatest victory to have lived to live and to continue living in a world that seems so indifferent to our mere existence. Mm. So we're, we're, yeah, we're, uh, we're actually playing in a world where we think everything's out to get us. But if we flip from the out to get us side, which isn't helpful, because we don't think well. Uh, so the cortisol uh, reactive loop, uh, not very effective. The dopamine opportunity loop, and I think if we start looking at change as opportunity, we become more effective as thinkers. So the first part of our model or thinking approach really looks at says, identify the source of change. And that's the first question. I think it's a really great question that people step over. And we've identified sort of three core sources of change. Yep. And being aware of those is the first bit that gets us uh, neocortex, prefrontal cortex, and start analysing. So we want to analyse and observe first. So source of change, so adapting to external market conditions and changes. That's the obvious one that we see. The second one is internal refocusing. So has the business needed to make strategic decisions? So are we merging, acquiring, refocusing, or changing our offering there? So that's, that's a trigger for change. And then and probably the one that gets ignored the most is accommodating business scale. So there's a whole lot of documented research around business doesn't grow in linear patterns. It has basically black holes across an exponential yeah. and logarithmic path. 
Uh, peaks and troughs. Peaks Ab- and troughs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you, you look at some, and you think about sort of rates of change. Uh, you take a business like uh, Atlassian, for example. I think over the last five years, forty percent compound growth year on year. The systems, the processes, and the people. Yeah, that rate of change is, is far far greater than the uh, the external environment. Because yeah, in some ways, yeah, and and I'm happy to admit this. Yeah, you know, we're a small to medium enterprise at Trinity P3, and and I think uh, you know you're probably step change is a larger business than ours. But there is an advantage, isn't there, as a a leadership role in that in that it's easier to move a group of people. When you scale that up to very large organisations of thousands of people, the the delay, the lag effect of change is incredibly difficult to manage, isn't it? Oh, the... Yeah, it, it's like a... The being, nimbleness disappears. <laughs> being, being a parent, I think that's like the, uh, the little... Uh, uh, the little snapshot of like you have one child, you have two children. It isn't incremental; it's exponential of yeah, complexity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, things things change <laughs> back, and you get economies of scale at a certain point where the children uh, start to manage each other. But I think it's much. Uh, you quite rightly identify us being small and medium-sized enterprise ourselves. We actually spend most of our time coaching, developing yeah. the larger organisations because their ability to respond to change and the difficulties around that, I mean, that's where all the case studies come from. So the Innovators Dilemma and Christensen's work actually looks at the double bind large organisations often find themselves in. Well, yeah, the conversations I often have with some of, you know, because we work for very large organisations, you, you, like yourself, you, but you work across a range, don't you, from medium to large. Yeah. Um, and when I talk about, because the thing that drives us innovation for us mm-hmm. is curiosity yes you know and it's the idea of encouraging people to be curious to understand how things are working how things are changing mm. and what are the opportunities that come out of that and when I talk about it with our clients that are large organizations they look at me aghast they go oh my god I don't want a thousand curious people <laughs> because I'll end up with a thousand curious ideas that are going to potentially take the company in in multiple directions. Mm. There's a fascinating thing that you've just tapped on there, Darren, which is this discretionary effort. Mm. Uh, So so what happens there is that for an organisation to scale and be effective and get size, it needs compliance within guardrails. Mm -hmm. If an organisation can't do that, it can't scale and, and effectively crumbles. But an organisation that is able to scale with compliance within guardrails, but then has the discretionary effort for people to think, respond and behave outside those guardrails, mm-hmm. is when organisations become great. Okay. And, and, and we see organisations that work very hard uh, to that. So scrum methodology we were talking about before, etc., looks at empowering teams and people. So Netflix, for example, is famous for their culture book that as they scale and grew, they had less control yeah. and less oversight and actually empowered people to be adults. We, um, <clears throat> Ash, we call that frameworking. Yep. So we, we define the organisations as having a framework mm-hmm. or creating frameworks for them so that yeah, the beauty of a framework is that you can build on, on any side of a framework. Yes. It ultimately builds in the direction that the frame takes you, but yes. it allows outpouchings you know, like extensions, you yeah. called it discretionary effort. Yeah. But only to the point that it becomes unsupported. Yep. Yeah. Right? So suddenly if there's a new 
outpouching, a new direction coming off the framework, yeah. the decision then for the organisation is, do we build new a new framework to support that because we see the positive yep. aspects of it? Or do we not and we focus on our core yep. so that it ultimately will just collapse under its own, own. sort of yep. lack of momentum and support? Yeah. You know, and I think it, for me it's a really interesting way of thinking about it because what change then becomes is uh, the, the building of the framework mm. to a strategic requirement. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's some wonderful factors in play. I just, uh, when you were explaining that, I had, I don't know if you were, uh, you saw it growing up, but uh, Fraggle Rock, the TV I, show, I had uh, visions of the dozers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, the, and, and the Fraggles being the, the external uh, the external force of change uh, of, of where, where they focus. But one thing that works with frameworks is, is obviously people. Yeah. And and I think when we've talked about different ages of industrialization and progression from agricultural age, industrial age, information age, I think funnily enough, and, and one of the conversations that organizations have not had, now there is thought leaders out there progressing, I think we're into the resilience age. Mm. And uh, you know, one of the beautiful things when you talk about core and direction is if we think about core core business versus core purpose. Yes. They're actually different things. And if we start to pull those apart and say, if we remain fixed around core business, we yeah. won't survive. That's if right. we remain true to core purpose, we then have a chance. Well, the prime example that immediately comes to mind is Kodak. Okay? Yes. <laughs> the core business was yeah. film. Yeah. The core purpose was capturing memories. Yeah, and being able to you, you know, keep those memories alive. Mm. And they lost direction because they supported the core business. Mm. Film, 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 film. Mm. They developed huge amounts of patents for digital technology, mm. but largely missed the boat, ended up selling them off. Interestingly, they're making a comeback <laughs> in the film space because everything old is new again. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I think... The, the trouble that they got into three or four or five years ago was because they mixed up purpose and business mm. as, the, as the driver. And just to loop back around, one of the, the, the beautiful things you talked about shelving was people's view gets narrower mm. as, as they get older. One of the things that was underpinning the failure around observing that was one of the human heuristics of confirmation bias, of wanting to see what we want to see. Yeah. Yeah, so we don't have what we want, uh, we, we want what we have. <laughs> we ask the questions that we know will get the answers to support our position Absolutely. rather than asking the questions that are potentially going to put our assumptions under a cloud or under, under the microscope. So it was, I think it was about 1985. We have a piece of IP called the, the Smart Decision System, right. which acknowledges the biases within human thinking and tries to use a decision system yeah. rather than the... Uh, the intuitive gut feeling of analysis. So this is work from uh, Oliver Savoni out of Sydney Uni who basically said organisations that don't have a decision-making system are six times less effective than organisations that do. Right. So it's a real question. And one of those elements around the decision-making system is says it says set triggers for reappraisal. So Kodak did some work in I think the late 1980s and they said digital photography would never tip because the pixelation wouldn't ever satisfy consumer needs and there was the cost of the camera and then there was the desire to hold prints. 
Now, that was true at the time. They just never set reappraisal triggers to say if pixel count changes. Has that changes. changed? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was the... Has the world caught up? Has technology yeah. surpassed the understanding? Because, you know, this goes back to the whole thing about you can't ask a consumer what they want in the future because they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's up to the company to identify the human behaviour, need or desire yeah. and bring the technology or the solution to bear to fulfil that need. It was the... Uh, uh, Henry Ford quote, yeah. if I'd asked consumers what they'd wanted, I would have built a faster, faster horse. horse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But look, yeah, we've seen organisations, and we've worked with some recently, that have gone through this constant uh, evolution of change. Mm. But what I notice, and, and they're suffering change fatigue, yes. because people have, you know, they'll have four or five different business cards mm. with different titles, and yeah. they've only been there for a year or two. Yeah. But what I've noticed is that a lot of these changes seem to be moving deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah. All that's happening is that they're moving clusters of people around mm. and not actually realigning them to either a purpose mm. or a business function or core. Yeah. Have you, have you seen that same sort of uh, change fatigue and, and it caused by superficial, not long-term sustainable change? Yeah, well, I, I think you've actually, I think the answer's within the question there is mm. not pulling apart core business versus core purpose is, is the first fundamental failing. I think there's something really interesting around change fatigue, though. Mm -hmm. and, and I think failure in first instance, needs, we need to have a chat about that, and then we need to talk about recurrent failures leading to fatigue. So if, if we just go back and we say source of change is something I don't think businesses correctly identify, they get caught in one of the three that we talked about, whether it being uh, contextual change, uh, strategic mm. internal change, or growth change, and they don't see the way that the three interact. Yeah. The second thing they don't do is they don't look at the human element to support change. And when I was talking about, I believe to my bones we're in the resilience era, people are hiring very narrow, and they're not testing individuals' ability, ability to, to cope flex. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And it's something that in a top grading sense of recruitment, people aren't hiring wide enough and they're not testing for these things on the way in. And it is so short-sighted to think that people won't be changing. So hiring for a competency now without testing for people's ability to change, tweak, reskill and realign mm. is a fool's errand. And we've seen time and time again the inability for people to forecast long term you know it's that it's that gates quote that says uh we massively overestimate the changes in the next two years massively underestimate the changes in the next 10 mm. and the longer it gets the more inaccurate we get i think it was the mid 1980s uh that mckinsey and co did a forecast of cell phone adoption in the states and they predicted 9,000 uh, cell phones in the states <laughs> by the year 2000 yeah. uh the actual thing was 109 million they were a long way off, and those yeah. were the smartest brains at the time. So trying to predict the future and accepting things won't change, that we're just going to be blindsided, is really a fool's errand. So I don't know how many organisations have successfully gone through and tested workforce resilience. I just don't think they've done no. it. I've never heard of it. Mm. You know, and in fact, what's happened is that people are inclined to recruit for narrower and narrower definitions as a way of almost filling these gaps in the organisational yeah, framework. Yeah. You know, I need a digital... 
digital specialists. Now, this is a, a really key area. The number of very senior marketers yes. that have come to us in the last six months and said, we have a mandate from the C-suite or the board mm. that we have to become more digital-centric, customer-centric, technology-centric, yep. right? And it's really interesting because... All of those things are functional yes. rather than strategic or purposeful. Mm. Yep. Right? It's all about adding a functionality, adding digital functionality, customer functionality, mm. you know, to uh, or technology functionality to the offering. And I always say to them, look, what's the strategy, mm. not the execution? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's beautiful when you link people through to strategy and uh, one of the... You know Tony Shea from Zappos? Mm -hmm. So his, his book out at the moment, Delivering Happiness, actually collapses a lot of those concepts. So artificially saying, here's our strategy, here's our people, here's mm. our delivery mechanism. He just went back to actually say, marketing doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Customer service doesn't exist anymore. Product doesn't exist anymore. Every time I interact with a customer, that's where my business lives. Yeah. And that's the only place it lives. And he says, as transparency rises, the collapse between corporate strategy, customer service and marketing becomes an artificial nuance. Well, it's actually aligning all of those things to the same purpose. Of course it is. And he just, he goes back, so the title of his book, Delivering Happiness, becomes the title of Zappos. Mm. Uh, you know, that's what their customer care charter is all about. And they're saying, you know, they're currently doing shoes, then they do clothes, but mm. it's about delivering happiness to customers yeah. and an that's... experience that makes the customer happy because that's the differentiator in a market where it's often a secondary yeah. or added on feature and then you have the opportunity to make that as a core enabler of your strategy mm -hmm. so if you do have a, i mean there's only ever two types of strategies really there's stroke of the pen strategies which says i'm gonna purchase a foreign exchange hedge fund offset or something you can just sign that just about everything else involves a human element yeah. And if there's a human element, have we actually looked at diagnosing and then resourcing for that? So uh, certainly around the diagnosis, do our people have the knowledge, the will and the skill? And as you pointed out before, those three things are actually different where people may be competent in a particular area. So they may have the knowledge, but the skill in delivery around that or the will to move to the organization's purpose hasn't been tested or, or hasn't, hasn't checked the alignment there. Yeah, because, you know, part of this and, and a lot of the studies about uh, organisational change mm. say that one of the things that often is lacking in change is making sure that the people mm. are actually understanding and see where they fit in yeah. to the ultimate structure and the delivery of purpose. Yeah. That the reason people get up in the morning and mm. spend their eight hours or nine hours or ten hours a day mm. in a working environment isn't... The money is the sort of why why they're there, mm. but the reason that they do it is because they want to have a sense of purpose. Yeah, they want to feel like that they contribute and belong to mm. uh, making a difference or making a change. And it's really interesting is that often people will have it and leaders will get something. Uh, I run a leadership course called Powerful Presence, but I start that by saying often leaders get something here, I'm pointing to my forehead, but they miss here, I'm pointing to my heart. So they can get it conceptually, but they don't get where the rubber hits the road. And certainly Daniel Pink's work is very well known mm. now that says it's actually very little correlation between financial remuneration and satisfaction. Mm. What matters is purpose 
Do I believe in something of where I'm going? Mastery, am I getting better and improving my self-worth around that? And then autonomy, do I have a say in the direction? So leaders get purpose, mastery, and autonomy. What they don't get is what uh, what I call change enrollment. And uh, one of our, our clients and friends, a guy called Michael Henderson, the corporate anthropologist, is actually brilliant at looking at the evolutionary cultural foundations of how organizations thrive. And what's missing around the enrollment is basically three questions. Yeah. and they're so simple, but they're just stepped over. So do I understand the changes that are happening and how they fit? First question. So do I understand it? Second question, do I want it? And am I willing to play the game? And I go back to Zappos again. At the end of their training, Tony Shea basically says, now that you understand it, I'm going to give you $2,000 to leave. <laughs> so now that you get it, I'm going to give you an incentive to leave because people who leave at that Point. And for we're never bought into, into it anyway. It's just it's, it's a beautiful thing. And then the third thing is, is where ownership transfers. And this is the critical point of where change fails is the ownership. Are you prepared to do what it will take? Yeah. And in the absence of asking those three questions, there's been no change enrollment. And without any change enrollment, there's just... So it's that third area where fatigue has a huge role. Yes. Because if you're constantly moving people and and wrong in in a way wrong footing them because mm. you're never properly placing them mm. into that position where they understand mm. and have bought into it. Yep. They're never going to do the things that are needed to make it work. Absolutely. And, and and it's those two elements, if we just double back for a second. So diagnosis basically says, do people have the knowledge, will, and the skill? And then do I have the right resources? Mm. So it's a capabilities audit. So often around, then I can get enrollment with my people, but then I need the right resourcing around. Now, resourcing is obviously a blend of roles, people, and systems and processes, which we can talk about uh, in a minute. But certainly around the resourcing uh, one of the biggest mistakes we see strategically, I think we talked about it last time, is what we call cherry on a mud pie strategy. No, no. Uh, so cherry on a mud pie strategy is, is one of my favourites where a leadership team go away for a two-day offsite, or sometimes it's a week, and yeah. sometimes it's uh, at a uh, uh, sort of a Polynesian resort, and they come back tanned and so excited, and they gather the troops there on the Monday for an all-hands meeting, and they go, here's our new strategy, drumbeat reveal, and they look out in the audience, and there's people who are already working at 120% with their arms crossed, they're mm -hmm. downtrodden, they're fatigued, and all they've heard is, great, more stuff to do. Yeah. We always recommend, we have a tool around this called the stop audit. Right. And we almost make it as a do not pass go, do not collect $200 for managers to say, before they introduce a new strategy, they say, we all know that everyone's been working really hard, maybe even longer than, uh, than they'd like. We also understand that without, reducing, uh, without introducing new capabilities or without reducing current workload, that any new strategy is going to fail. So the first thing we're going to do is play a game called a stop audit and we're going to review all the things that we do to fill our day. Mm -hmm. And we're going to incentivize, reward you guys, not with financial, but with fun experiences. And at a team level we go through, and there's a tool to do this called a stop audit, to go through and free up capacity and resource. Mm -hmm. And that we only introduce the strategy once we've actually confirmed the resources available for it. It's just so refreshing and so different. It, it is also almost human nature 
to continue doing the things that are not really required because you've always done it. Absolutely. We had a, um, we had a research and uh, analytics team in a financial services company. Yeah. And the team were complaining nonstop about the amount of work they had. Yes. And in fact, when we did an audit, they were producing over 400 reports every month. Oh. 400 reports oh. out into the organisation. Wow. And the, uh, the CMO said to me, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, this is a radical uh, uh, <laughs> solution, but let's not produce a report for a month. Stop it. <laughs> and then look at how many people co uh, complained about yeah. not getting their report. And it was less than 10%. Wow. He actually did it. He said, no reports. Prepare them. Just don't send them out. Wow. So that if someone inquires, you can send it straight away. Wow. And it was less than 10%, less than 40 out of 400 reports people actually missed. Now, this is because yeah. the, we often make the mistake of rewarding or incentivizing people to be busy, mm. but not to focus on what the core purpose mm. is that we're trying to achieve. Yeah. So for the, the uh, analytics and, and uh, uh, research team, mm. insights team, they felt that producing more reports mm. was a sign that they were important, yes. that they were making a contribution. It was irrelevant, the number of reports. Mm. What was important was how those reports were being used mm. to actually create the insights and the understanding mm. to drive the business forward. But no one had bothered to communicate that. Mm. It's really interesting, Darren. So one of the things that we, we work a lot across behavioural economics, people don't naturally go to implication. And there's two implications there is it's not the reports, it's the usage of the reports that yeah. matters. The second thing is, and your insight around 400 reports, people don't actually calculate the hours and the cost of that. Yeah. And the moment people actually calculate the hours and the cost of all the people, all the hours, all the flow and effects, all that, it just yeah. becomes madness. So the, the little step between I understand what's going on and I'm aware of the implications around that is, is a little step that changes everything. Now, it's probably at the heart of the stop audit is actually looking at up and down the chain, what are the impacts and how much money would I save or how much resource would I free up? And, and we find that, we use a term that's called speaking to the listening. Yeah. yeah. What's the listening for things? Yeah. And uh, certainly before even putting down a new strategy, checking that we've done the resourcing for it and letting people know but because they're listening for a new strategy without saying we're, we're introducing this much resource yeah it's just but that, but yeah when the they stand up coming back from their retreat yeah. in the uh the islands and yeah. they're all tanned the listening in the room is probably on oh, no, here we go again that's more, exactly more it. work to do yeah that's it. um rather than what is the opportunity in this for me there absolutely and and that's basically goes back to that defensive cortisol resistant loop mm -hmm. to the dopamine possibility something new something different because changes like risk risk isn't inherently good or bad no it's all about smart risk change is exactly the same change is not inherently good or bad it's all about smart change and if we can have the right thinking systems the right support and the right models to approach it then it should be a net benefit for everyone but, you know, it comes back to that resilience age thing again, of mm. testing for resilience on the way through. Because there are some people who, for whatever reason, do not respond well to uncertainty. Mm. They, their ability to learn, think and solve just shuts down. 
And, and there's still roles for those people inside organisations. Absolutely. There are engines that mm. they would be ideal in because yeah. an engine needs to work like clockwork mm. to drive something forward. Mm. It's really what we're talking about. And I guess that's another point, and, and I just thought of it then. Mm. The observation that often change is applied as a holistic approach across an organisation. Yes rather than strategically into the points that will make the biggest difference. Yeah. Because how many times do we hear of corporate change and every single role gets spilled in mm. the organisation and refilled the to the time. new strategy? At know. the same time. And, and that, that comes down to our conversation last time when we talked about what strategy is, mm. is the application of scarce resources to a particular point for maximum leverage. Great conversation, by the way. <laughs> and... And I'm enjoying this conversation too. The, uh, the, the opportunity around resilience, and, and as you quite rightly point out, it's not saying that everyone in the organisation has to be resilient. But what organisations don't spot, and there's, there's a body of thinking around this called the centre for the edge, is that organisations have a centre of gravity. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yep. And an organisation's centre of gravity is determined by how many people are at the edge the thought leaders, the thinkers, the innovative uh, people, the, the, the lean process thinkers, yeah. the design thinkers, all those people who uh, pull the organisation forward. Yeah. Then you've got the laggards, yeah? So those, those people who are uh, parodied of being uh, the, the people who are stamping papers in a, yeah. uh, in a department. The finance department and the procurement department. Yeah, absolutely. So they're, they're, they're typecast negatively and we've seen them in movies like Office Space. but. There's those people who, who are your laggards. The centre of gravity pulls those people in the middle. And while we can recruit on a one-to-one basis for resilience and test for that, work happens in teams. Yeah. Organisations are just a group of people united by a common purpose. So unless we preserve the edge and an organisation has momentum and there is a balance or a counterbalance of more people with resilience and drive and adaptability versus the laggards, we will get stuck and we won't move. Now, what's interesting about that is we go back to the 1971 uh, Zimbardo research, I think it was, which is the Stanford Prison Experiments, that it says while we can test and coach and learn at an individual level, it is not people's... People think that their, their, their nature and their nurture determine their behaviour. Mm. And it's absolutely not the case. And research after research... So the Stanford Prison Experiments looked at what happens in atrocities. Right. And it is not that the people are inherently good or bad. It is the situation or the context that matters. The circumstances that they found themselves and, the and how prison, they deal with it. And the Stanford Prison Experiments took a... Uh, completely random sample of people and put them as inmates or guards and the negative behaviour that came out was just mind-blowing. So they actually stopped the experiment. It just got completely out of control. But what it's proven and been replicated time and time again is that it's the context that matters. Mm. And if the context within an organisation does not have a centre of gravity that is moving, you just simply cannot affect change. So while there is roles for specialists who are recalcitrant and resistant to change, if you can create a context where the rest of the organisation is open and moving and optimistic, they will move. So the overall centre of gravity centre of has gravi- momentum yeah. towards yeah. the strategy. Yeah, right? and, and, and there's, there's as a diagnosis, there's two really interesting things happen here. that If, if your edge isn't strong enough, 
and the center of gravity is beyond is below 50%, then the edge will snap off. Okay. I've okay. got an insight yeah. from this that I wouldn't mind getting your your thoughts on. Yes. And that is there was recently a report about boards in Australia. Mm. The way ASIC has set board governance, yes. it is all about compliance yes. at the expense of risk and possible growth. Mm. Right? In that boards spend more time mm. on making sure that they minimize risk mm. and maximize compliance. Yes. So in some ways, haven't boards potentially been set up under this, uh, these rules mm. to be part of drawing back the centre of gravity? That's such a beautiful insight, Darren. That's exactly what's happening. And I think as certainly across uh, Western societies and cultures, uh, lowest common denominator thinking that basically says, let's find the worst person and legislate back or legislate down without that implication. Remember we talked mm. about implication yeah. before? What you just spotted there was the implication of the cost, yeah. is that innovation programs aren't getting up and resourced. Smart risk isn't being taken. Yeah. And I think there needs to be a refocusing on those, those things that really matter. So how can we take smart risk? Because here's the other thing, the mammalian uh, uh, habit of the older you get, the less risk you take, yes. the more risk adverse you become. Yes. If you populate boards mm. with older mm. people, then they're going to naturally be more risk adverse. And maybe that's why profiles of boards have got such a sort of mature age yeah. as, it, as part of it. People feel what they don't know and they judge what they can't understand. Mm. And boards are more and more likely to do that. So what do they do? They seek confirming evidence of why they are where they are. And I think a lot of that Kinefin uh, thinking that says to embed innovation, we actually not need to say either or, we need to say and. Yeah. So how can we carve off, instead of being fail safe and trying to shift the whole organisation at once, how can we be safe fail yeah. and test? T test and learn in smaller, manageable, risk High risk, but low consequence. Wise. One product, yeah. one audience, one geography, let's play there. Yeah. But then let's test, learn, refine, repeat. And I think one of the interesting things about test, learn, refine, repeat, and where a lot of change within organisations fails, is the feedback loop. Yeah. You know, we talked about trigger metrics around Kodak as they just didn't come back to it. Effective feedback loops just don't happen. And certainly it used to be the CEO in traditional factory mm. and uh, traditional industrial workspaces that walk the floor. You know, we always talk about walk the yeah. floor and effective CEOs would do the walk. Every morning they're checking, hey, Dan, how's it going? What's down been happening? The, down to the coal face. Absolutely. You know, at the as we're getting linked offices, as we're getting geographic dispersion, as it's becoming responsive email correspondence mm. rather than intuitive, insightful, ethnographic, because effectively a walk the floors is an ethnographic moment. Uh, so we're relying much more on quantitative feedback, i.e. emails coming through from managers and line leads. Mm. So we're treating quantitative feedback as qualitative insight driven, whereas mm. we actually need to be, I guess, conceptually walking the floor. And I guess those feedback loops to, to say, what are the real tests for success here? How are we going to 
Well, I think it's, it's, it's about obtaining multiple inputs. Of course it is. Yeah, in that in some ways the, the number of inputs have narrowed because we've created, to, as a way of managing complexity, mm. people have narrowed the number of points of contact yes. to be able to cope. But in actual fact, in doing that, you've lost the diversity of yeah. multiple inputs. Yeah. You know, that's where walking the floor mm. is so fundamental because you actually get inputs from a whole range of people, yeah. different perspectives that you can then process and look for what's the insight mm -hmm. behind this. Look, we're, we're running out of time, but I, there is one issue, Ash, that I want to address. Yes. And that is there are key words around this topic. Yes. Um, you know, disruption, transformation, change management. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure if you go onto your LinkedIn feed, there's at least half a dozen, if not more, all talking about this. Yeah. But aren't we really talking about the same thing? And that is building into organisations the ability to cope with their changing circumstances and to look for the opportunities that exist within change. Yeah, look, I think there is like a, just like you, you sort of, your, your CPI, <laughs> yeah. there is, there's a change index and there's this baseline rate of change. And I think uh, certainly a the, the, the Weber effect, which basically says, as humans, we only have very limited processing, so we're noticed, we notice sensitivity in changes. Mm -hmm. So it's only like three to 5% change. Uh, it's the bald frog effect. So yeah. we turn the air conditioning up very slowly, and we don't notice it till it's actually risen an awful way. Yeah. And I think the rate of change of the rate of change has been changing faster than ever before. So there's an acceleration of change that means that baseline rate has now stretched to a point where we're, we're noticing it mm. and we're, we're really present to that. So there is that baseline rate of change, but then there's this completely new disruption. And when we started right at the, the, the start, when we looked at that Tony Sheba concept to say that every industry in the world will be disrupted over the next 10 to 15 years, that is not an improvement on a linear or exponential scale. It's actually, if you imagine a growth curve, it's a break. Yeah. It's a fundamental break and Tony talks about three types of disruption from below where there was an inferior product in terms of performance and quality which has now risen, so solar panels yeah. uh, where we're seeing the rise of Tesla and Sun City, personal computers they used to be uh, underperforming. From above where there was a premium product, product that's now become affordable. Yeah. Yeah, so smartphones, for example, yeah. the N-series Nokia phones were there, they just never had mass availability. And then there's kind of big bang, bang disruptions that were better and cheaper from day one. So, for example, the, uh, the old uh, directory books and the TomToms, yeah. when faced with Google Maps that was yeah. free and better, yeah. were just completely out of business. So step change approaches is basically around disruption. It says not just you need to get better at dealing with change full stop. And that's the type of conversation that we've had and probably listening to a Trinity P3 podcast is the best thing you can do. But then disruption's coming. Yeah. And you've got three choices. So as you look at the rise of uh, fundamental technology changes, the uh, artificial intelligence that says half the white collar jobs over the next 10 to 15 years will potentially be redundant. So if change is coming at a point of disruption, and it will disrupt. So change, 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 okay, break, bang, disrupt. Yep. Are you going to be this? Be the disruption? Are you going to be that disruption in your category? And therefore, is that on your purpose? And strategically, can you pull that off? 
are you going to bridge the disruption? So how do I transition my core business model across that disruption yeah. and bridge it? And I need to put in place the thinking around that or, or do I avoid it? Do I move now to say I will not actually be able to be that disruption or avoid it uh, or bridge it, so I need to avoid, avoid it. it completely. Yeah, yeah, so I need to go, so, so for example, uh, Moleskin potentially not credentialed uh, to move into electronic processing, note-taking, and those things, mm. so they actually move to an uber premium model of uh, embossed yeah. uber luxury. So I just avoid it. I say, like, I, can't, I cannot deal within that place. Yeah, I'll give up mass yeah. to move to a higher margin. Yeah. Re repositioned in yeah. the marketplace. Yeah. So, so I think if, if we need to wind up, that's probably the question. Yeah. Are we going to be it? Are we going to bridge it? Or are we going to avoid it? But the clock's ticking for us and business owners out there. So yeah. uh, that's probably a great place to leave it. Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you very much, Ashton Bishop, CEO of uh, Step Change. And uh, as always, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thank you.